When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast. Subscribe and follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join the conversation on Facebook or at our website, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Ohio vs. the World is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to evergreenpodcast.com for all our past episodes. Now here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back to Season 7 of Ohio vs. the World. Today we are talking about one of the most consequential Ohioans in history. That is Salmon P. Chase, Senator, Governor, Secretary of the Treasury during the Civil War, Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. He's also known as the Attorney General for Fugitive Slaves. Chase has remained a part of our everyday lives since his name not only is on the highest denomination of paper money in the country, the $10,000 bill, there's only a few of those still hanging around, but for us, we know him more importantly for Chase Bank. Chase's trustworthy stewardship of the American economy during the Civil War and saving the country from complete financial ruin amidst the fear and uncertainty of the war is why some Wall Street bankers chose to call their bank Chase National Bank in the 1870s. He had nothing to do with the bank, really, and has survived many mergers, acquisitions to become part of that financial giant we know today as J.P. Morgan Chase. Salmon P. Chase is known in history as Lincoln's scheming, ambitious rival from the team of rivals that was his cabinet. But we'll debunk that he was you know, some purely political creature. In fact, far from it. Salmon P. Chase is one of the most morally right men of the 19th century. Our guest today is one of my favorite historians and authors, Walter Starr. Walter's here to discuss his new book, which is the definitive biography of Salmon P. Chase from Simon & Schuster last year, Salmon P. Chase, Lincoln's Vital Rival. It's a must-read. Walter continues his brilliant career as a leading biographer with this new Chase book, he sent us a galley version ahead of its release in last November, and we thoroughly enjoyed it. Listen to it again on Audible. Uh, the book is, is on Audible as well. I'm prepping for this show. And again, it's Salmon P. Chase, Lincoln's Vital Rival. And Walter's joining the show for the second time. We discussed his hit book, Stanton, released uh, with Simon & Schuster back in 2017 on a previous episode about Edwin Stanton from Steubenville, Ohio, uh, Lincoln's war secretary during the war. You can go to evergreenpodcast.com or anywhere you get your podcast to find all our old episodes. That Stanton episode's a favorite of mine, but as a member of the Evergreen Podcast, you can find all our old shows, plus Profile, the show we previewed last week on the bonus episode, and our friend Jerry Landry, a friend of the show. Um, he's been on before in his show, Presidencies of the United States. Both are new to the network. Uh, and again, go to evergreenpodcast.com. We've got a couple different eras of 19th century American history to cover today and the important life of one Ohioan, Cincinnati's own Salmon P. Chase. A man who held nearly every important office in government, led America through the Civil War, and dedicated his life to the destruction of slavery, and saw that through to its successful end. A man who fought for unpopular, even radical ideas, made them mainstream. He made those causes the law of the land in the face of great opposition. 
So without further ado, it's time to swim upstream with episode five, Salmon P. Chase versus the world. Salmon Portland Chase is one of 11 Chase children born in New Hampshire in January 1808. When his father dies, his mother sends him to live in Ohio with his uncle, Philander Chase. Philander Chase was the Episcopal Bishop of, of Ohio. And as they brought his nephew to the West, young Salmon landed in Cleveland and made his way to Worthington, Ohio to join his uncle. He went to his uncle's school in Worthington, a suburb about 10 miles north of Columbus, the new capital of Ohio, and his uncle became the president of a new college in Knox County. It was called Kenyon College, still a great and expensive liberal arts school here uh, in central Ohio. But Salmon made his way to Cincinnati and continued his education in the growing city that was known as the Queen City, the Queen of the West, as it was referred to. And this nickname was kind of a tip of the cap to the civilizing cosmopolitan center of the West Cincinnati. Chase was taken with the city, and when he left in his late teens to finish his college years at, at the prestigious Dartmouth College, he would find his way back to the Queen City. Biographer Walter Starr joins the show to discuss Chase's years in the city he calls Cincinnati. Chase had, had lived in Cincinnati for about a year um, when he was 13 years old. His uncle, uh, Philander Chase, the first Episcopal Bishop of Ohio, received and accepted the offer to become president of Cincinnati College. And young Chase was living with him at that time. And so he moved to Cincinnati. And so first saw it in about 1821. We unfortunately don't have letters from Chase from that first period when he first lays eyes on Cincinnati. I would give a lot for such a letter. But he must have been favorably impressed. And then, you know, he reads about it in the papers and he knows um, how rapidly it's growing. And he decides rather than trying his hand at, in Baltimore or Albany, you know, one of the more established Eastern cities, he decides that he wants to start his legal career in Cincinnati. He writes to a friend that he would rather be first in Cincinnati immediately rather than being first in Baltimore in 20 years time. After graduating Dartmouth in 1826 at just age 18, he moves to Washington, D.C. to study law under then U.S. Attorney General William Wirt. These years, while Wirt was the AG to, to John Quincy Adams, those years truly changed Chase's life. He sees national politics at the ground level. He makes friends from all over the country. He catches that political bug. I worked on Capitol Hill as a college kid, and I, I get it. It was infectious working there. I'm sure you can burn out, too, working there, but it feels important. It feels like the work you're doing matters. Walter Starr's great new book, Salmon P. Chase, Lincoln's Vital Rival, released last year from Simon & Schuster, it goes in depth in those early chapters about his couple of years in the nation's capital, really kind of groundbreaking new work. And he falls in love with the attorney general's daughter, though it was not to be. One of the things that I'm very proud of uncovering is that he had a love life even when he was in Washington. He fell in love with the, the daughter of his mentor, William Wirt. I'm the first biographer of Chase to actually work in the Wirt papers um, uh, in Maryland and, and find kind of Chase talking about the Wirts in his papers and the Wirts talking about Chase in their papers. But he didn't marry her. He didn't have any money. Chase returns to Cincinnati in 1830 to begin his career as a lawyer. Cincinnati was a city on the rise. It was the largest city in the so-called Middle West. It had become a commercial center, and people later would begin calling it Porkopolis. 
The Ohio River connected the east to the west, and the west was places then like New Orleans and St. Louis. But Cincinnati is around the sixth or seventh largest city in the country in the 1830s and 40s. Chase would move there in 1830 just as the population began to boom. But it's the location in antebellum America of Cincinnati that would mold Solomon P. Chase into becoming one of the leading political figures in the abolitionist movement. It's a half a mile from the slave south. You look across the river and see Kentucky. You could walk across the Ohio River in the winter when it iced over, and many runaway slaves did. But it was, in many respects still today, is a city full of racial strife. Many slaves would just walk off the dock while unloading goods from the south at Cincinnati's ports and just walk into freedom in Ohio. It wasn't that easy. They'd have to, you couldn't walk. You most likely had to run because somebody would be looking for you. But Chase was not an abolitionist upon his arrival. Living in New England and Ohio, slavery and the plight of African Americans was not his concern in his teens and early 20s. Ms. Walter Starr explains, living in Cincinnati would change him forever. I think it's important to note that when he first arrived, when he lives in Washington as a young man, when he first arrives in Cincinnati as a young man, he is not anti-slavery. He is not an abolitionist. He writes in one letter from Washington uh, that little cause exists for that sickly sympathy, which many at the North feel or affect to feel with the sufferings of the slave. Um, So that is not an abolitionist attitude. He comes to it gradually. He's part, an unwilling part of a riot in Cincinnati when some uh, folks take out their anger at an abolitionist editor by, by destroying his printing press and destroying the homes of some blacks for good measure. Um, And that editor, James Bernie hires him to represent him in court, which leads to the, I think, the first of his cases representing Blacks. We we can't be quite sure because we don't have his, you know, a a list of every case he took as a young lawyer in which he represented. Is that the Matilda case? This is the Matilda case, yeah. And we'll talk about the Matilda case here, a landmark case in Chase's career here in a second, but... Walter mentioned something maybe we'll have to discuss in a later episode. He refers to the Cincinnati race riots of 1836. And you'll notice I said plural, riots, because there were two. Walter's referring to the July riot, but in April, there was a riot that had a mob of Irish Cincinnati residents march into the city's West End and burn down an entire section of black house and killing several black citizens. Ohio was the north, but Cincinnati was a border city-state of its own. When you think of Ohio as this bastion of freedom for all races from its inception, it was not. Ohio law was written such that blacks could not vote, they could not hold office. There was a law that blacks moving into Ohio had to have two two white men put up a $500 bond to sponsor that the black immigre would be able to abide by the laws, and if not, that money would be forfeited. Not that that law was enforced, you know, universally in in all cases, as thousands of African Americans came to Ohio in the first half of the 19th century. But African-Americans couldn't even testify in criminal or civil cases involving whites. So if you didn't have a white witness, you couldn't prosecute crimes against white people if you were a black man or woman. That's a big deal in in day-to-day life, separate, but incredibly unequal. Chase sees this constant injustice in Cincinnati, and he starts using his incredible lawyering skills to become known as the Attorney General of Fugitive Slaves. He's friends with people like Harriet Beecher Stowe. They discuss abolition in the semicolon club scholarly literary society in Cincinnati. You can go listen to our season three episode, Ohio vs. Abolitionist, when we discuss Beecher Stowe and her incredibly popular and influential book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and the militant abolitionist John Brown. Brown was from Hudson, Ohio, south of Cleveland. 
a, re- a really good episode you can go find. But Chase takes up this cause, and it was the Matilda case, that he lays out a framework for other abolitionist lawyers to fight fugitive slave cases across the country. He represents Bernie's half-white, half-black housekeeper who's accused of being a fugitive slave. And Chase's arguments include that the Federal Fugitive Slave Act is not constitutional because the relevant clause of the Constitution, he argues, should be interpreted as a compact among the states rather than a grant of authority to Congress. And he also has some other arguments, such as that Matilda wasn't really a fugitive, because her master had brought her to Ohio, and you can't be a fugitive unless you, under the constitutional language, flee from one state to another. He loses the case. Matilda is condemned to a life of slavery, but we know what he argued. I'm able to be very detailed about it in the book because he he printed his arguments in a pamphlet, which then becomes kind of a, a template for himself and other lawyers arguing these kind of cases. Salmon P. Chase is not known as the gregarious storyteller of the abolition movement. He's not like Lincoln. He's not like William Seward going to parties, regaling guests with his stories. Walter in his book points out that in the 1840s, while Chase is becoming the attorney general of fugitive slaves, Lincoln is representing slave holes trying to reclaim allegedly escaped slaves. But Chase is a pretty serious person. He's very religious, as so many were in the 19th century. I mean, he grows up in Ohio as the ward of the state's Episcopal bishop, his uncle Philander Chase. So much of his personality and dour attitude has to be related to the amount of death that he experienced in his life. It's absurd how much death surrounds him. His father dies when he's nine, which is how he gets to Ohio in the first place. His mother can't care for 11 children. But we talked to Walter Starr about that traumatic death of his father and how that was just the beginning of a life of death surrounding Salmon P. Chase. Uh, he marries first when he, not long after he settles in Cincinnati, and he is a you know, rising young lawyer. But his first wife dies after a couple years. He marries again. His second wife dies after a couple years of tuberculosis. He marries a third time. And that wife, who lives a little bit longer, also dies of tuberculosis. Um, This is now into the 1850s. His three wives have a total of six children. Uh, Only two of those children live to be even teenagers. Chase himself is one of a family of 11 children. Uh, By the time he's my age, in his early 60s, um, Chase has grieved the death of each of his siblings. He's he's the last remaining one of, of the children of his parents. So that's a lot of death, even before we get to the deaths of the Civil War. And it's not surprising, I think, that he becomes, you know, sort of a serious, sober, not a not a teller of tales like my other subject, uh, William Henry Sewell. As Chase comes of age, there's two main parties in America. The Democrats of men like Andrew Jackson and the Whig Party of folks like Henry Clay, Speaker of the House later a senator. Chase is a Whig. He's politically active in the 1830s. He serves on the Cincinnati City Council in 1840, the same year he campaigned for the first president from Ohio, a Whig, William Henry Harrison. That's a campaign 1840 that we argued was the first modern presidential campaign back in our season five episode about William Henry Harrison. It's one of my favorites, but he grows disillusioned with the lack of abolitionist sentiment 
in either major party. And after 1840, he leaves the Whig Party and he starts, you know, this, his own party called the Liberty Party. He joins it. I found this fascinating because I was always taught to believe that Chase was an ambitious, scheming, power-hungry politician. But reading Walter's groundbreaking biography, Chase, Lincoln's vital rival, that's clearly not the case. Chase is so ahead of the curve on, on what would become the collapse of the Whig Party and the birth of the Republican Party really 15 years before it happens. And that was not ambition, as Walter Starr explains. Especially that decision to, to leave the Whig Party and join a party. The Liberty Party in the 1840 presidential election polled a grand total of 7,000 votes nationwide. That was about one third of 1%. In other words, roughly uh, where the Green Party was in the 2020 election. And I'm reasonably sure that not many of your listeners can name the Green Party candidates. And it, it, this was a very curious kind of ambition, really not ambition at all. This was, this was a determination to do right, regardless of its, its effect on his own career that led him into the, these tiny parties. And then he, he does gradually and successfully build up these parties into ultimately the Republican Party. This was a point noted at, at a number of points by editors that said, you know, it was a curious kind of ambition that could see as early as the eight, early 1840s, the, the future of, of slavery in America. Chase finds himself as a successful and somewhat famous lawyer in the 1840s in Cincinnati, but he's in the political wilderness. His Liberty Party begins a grassroots movement to bring abolitionism, really more so the goal of halting the spread of slavery in the territories. Things like the Mexican War and the admission of states like California out west brought these issues to the forefront of the national political debate. Walter's book described these frustrating years of Chase's political life, such a well-researched book, as all his books really are. But there's another great book out there about this period in American history, 30s and 40s, which was always a bit of a blind spot for me in, in history. But H.W. Brands' Heirs of the Founders from 2018, it recounts those formative years in America through the stories of the three biggest politicians of the time, Daniel Webster, Henry Clay, and John C. Calhoun from South Carolina. Definitely one to go grab. But Chase's frustrating decade of gaining followers and building the Liberty Party, later the Free Soil Party movements, kind of you know come to national prominence. It ends with him taking a seat along those same giants of the U.S. Senate. Webster, Clay, Calhoun, Stephen Douglas. Walter talks to us about Chase's unorthodox route to national politics, becoming the junior senator from Ohio in 1849, when Mr. Chase goes back to Washington. The Liberty Party is the anti-slavery party. He, one of the first things he does when joining the party is try to divorce it from abolitionism. He knows that that's a word that is not going to win a lot of votes. He, so he he loves to use the word anti-slavery rather than abolition. And then he 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 realizes that that party alone is never going to achieve much. And so he spends a lot of the 1840s trying to to engineer some kind of a merger, um, and ultimately um, does in 1848 with the creation of the Free Soil Party, of which he's really in a sense, the, the national leader. He's not the presidential candidate, but he's the, for example, the chairman of the, the national convention uh, in Buffalo. He's sort of a, a 
a prime campaigner for free soil candidates that year. He, he gets sent to the Senate and he doesn't call himself a free soil senator. He calls himself a, a free soil Democrat or a Democratic free soiler or an independent Democrat. He's not really recognized as a Democrat by traditional Democrats like Senator Jefferson Davis. Again, in the mid-1850s, engineers another merger of the Free Soil Party sort of dissolves and merges into what we call the Republican Party. The subject of today's show, Salmon P. Chase, serves in the Senate at an incredibly precarious time for our country. Laws and bills were passed that locked America into an unavoidable path to Fort Sumter and Civil War in 1861. You have the Compromise of 1850, the Fugitive Slave Act, the Kansas-Nebraska Act. These vital moments in the U.S. Senate where the wrong decisions were made by slim votes that sent us on a path for war that would claim more American lives than any war in our history. Chase was on what I would consider the right side of history on all these issues. He rose, he spoke on all these issues, and spent six consequential years in the United States Senate. And those are some incredible chapters in, in Walter's book, Chase, Lincoln's Vital Rival. As I said, he may have been on the right side of history in those years on Capitol Hill, but he's also on the losing side. He's a senator for six years, from early 1849 through early 1855. Uh, the two main bits of legislation are what we call the Compromise of 1850. He's against it, particularly the Fugitive Slave Act and the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. And again, he's against it. Both of those pass over his objection. And some of the things you know, the what we might call lesser things that he's in favor of, such as federal legislation to create a, a railroad um, out to California, um, yeah. don't pass while he's a senator. So in a sense, it's a, a frustrating period for him. But, you know, it does make him a national figure on, on a par with people like um, Stephen Douglas or William Henry Seward. Chase was basically a man without a party when his term came up in the Senate, and he's sent home to Ohio. But at the same time, in 1855 and 1856, he's working on a new national party, the Republican Party. We'll talk about this new party shortly, but Salmon P. Chase was a viable presidential candidate in 1856 after winning the 1855 gubernatorial election in Ohio. It was pretty close, but he did win by about 3-4%. It's a two-year term back then to be governor of Ohio, and he would win re-election for a second term. The Chases moved to Columbus at the beginning of his first term in 1856, and they lived downtown on 6th Street near the new majestic state house that that Governor Chase would dedicate one year later. Same place I got married 159 years later. The day that I was married to Mrs. Ohio v. the World at the Ohio State House, I remember thinking that I encountered Salmon P. Chase twice, once in the morning when I got a bunch of cash out to pay the band at the Chase. And again, during our cocktail hour following the ceremony at the Ohio State House, there were two large busts that looked over the room, one of Lincoln and one of Chase. I just thought of that as we celebrated our anniversary. The weird things that you remember from your wedding day. As I said, the Chases, plural, moved to Columbus. That included the governor and his two daughters, Kate and Nettie. Kate Chase was in her late teens when she came back to Ohio and lived in Columbus to run her father's social affairs. We did an episode on Kate Chase, a fascinating woman with a fascinating life back in season two called Ohio vs. Celebrity. Go back to listen to that episode. There's so much more. Another 20 years of being at the center stage uh, for Kate Chase, especially for a woman in those years. Or you can just buy Walter's book, get it on Audible to hear Kate's story. We talk with Walter Starr about Chase's years in Columbus as the governor of the Buckeye State. Going back in time a little bit to the winter of 1850, when his third wife is diagnosed with tuberculosis and, and Chase kind of 
Um, parks are in a succession of tuberculosis cure facilities, none of which, of course, cure the tuberculosis. Um, it, it, he parks his daughter, who's very young, Kate is mm, 10 at the time, in a boarding school in New York City. So um, I, I think already she was a little bit of a handful and and too much for her, her sickly mother, stepmother to deal with. But when he's elected governor, Chase decides that he and his two daughters, he has another uh, younger daughter, Nettie, will live in Columbus, which is a little bit of an unusual choice. It wasn't required that governors live in, in Columbus at the time because the legislature isn't in session for that much of the year. You know, being governor, it's a job, but it's not quite the all-consuming job that being governor is today. They they live first with a, another family, and then they buy a house. And uh, with much uh, with much effort, I found a picture of the house. A British traveler who visited the house not long after they decorated it um, gives a pretty detailed description, and she's very complimentary of the young. Kate Chase, she's now about 17 years old, but but she really served as her father's interior decorator for that house. And it, I gather it was quite lovely. Uh, she was quite lovely. And already there are little snippets in the diaries and letters suggesting <laughs> that she's attracting the attention of married men, which of course is not at all to her father's uh, liking. She was apparently in her late teens, quite quite the beauty, quite quite enchanting, but there was something about Kate Chase that attracted men like moths to a flame. The Republican Party grew out of the wreckage of the Whig Party and a number of other parties, such as the Know Nothings and many others, to battle the Democrats in the 1856 election. The know-nothing candidate in 1856 was Martin Van Buren. He got 21% of the vote. That's a pretty high number, about the highest you see from a third-party candidate. There's a majority of Americans leading into the Civil War that were Republicans or know-nothings or others, you know, compared to the 45% who voted for James Buchanan, the Democrat, that year when he won. We talk with Walter Starr about just what was the mix of the early Republican Party that Solomon P. Chase would lead. We've, we've mentioned the, the Whigs and the Democrats. I mean, the most important other group that has to be kind of merged or dealt with in order to form the Republican Party are the so-called know-nothings or American Party, the what you might call the anti-immigrant party or the anti-Catholic party, um, which was incredibly powerful in the mid-1850s. And some people thought that that it would be the, the successor to the Whig Party, that, that we would kind of wind up uh, having a, our, our party you know, split along those lines. And to get himself elected governor, especially the first time, Chase had to walk a fine line. He he wasn't going to endorse the know-nothings, but he couldn't oppose them too strenuously. And so the slate, if you will, that on which he's elected, yes, he's definitely a Republican as governor, but most of the other nominees for lieutenant governor and other offices that year are former know-nothings. They're, they're running on a so-called People's Party or Fusion Party. They, they don't, and indeed many papers characterize it as the Republican slate, but it's a delicate process to kind of knit these people with different ideas together 
um, and get Chase elected and then reelected governor in Ohio. As the governor of Ohio, a former senator and anti-slavery stalwart, Solomon P. Chase is one of the two major figures in the new Republican Party being considered in the run-up to the 1860 election. The other was a senator from New York and longtime national politician, William Seward. Seward was the favorite, but Chase was right there. From Auburn, New York, Seward was the party's standard bearer in the Senate and the subject of an amazing book by our guest Walter Starr. It was a Simon Schuster book uh, a few years back. Walter tells us why Chase was a favorite and how the state of Ohio held even more importance in our national politics than it does today. Ohio is a lot more important nationally in the mid-1850s than it is today. It's it's the third most populous state. So um, even, and and Chase goes and gives speeches other places, but even if you just view him as largely at this point, a local figure, he has, you know, it has national implications. You know, he's one of those considered for the the 1856 Republican presidential nomination because he's one of the nation's leading Republicans. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. As the Republicans meet in Chicago for their convention on May 16, 1860, there's a sense that it had become a much more wide-open race, mainly because the country knew Seward and Chase, and they had been, frankly, outspoken anti-slavery advocates. They had a paper trail. They'd pissed off the South, clearly, many independents and those in the swing states. You have to understand, in 1860, it was not preordained that the country was less than a year away from Civil War. Too often when we listen to podcasts, read books about history, movies, what have you, we forget that we know what's going to happen in the story. The people of the time, they don't know how it's going to go. They don't know how it's going to end up. I always try to remind myself that I have hindsight. I know what happens and can, that can cloud your judgment if you don't always recognize that. But the goal was to avoid civil war, to avoid antagonizing the South and pushing them to secession. And while that leaves in place slavery to the vast majority of white Northerners, and remember, you're talking about an 87, 88% white country at this point, and about 97% of the eligible voters for equally racist reasons are white. To that vast, vast majority, 9 out of 10 people, slavery was existing was not something they were prepared to stop or, or really felt they could. Yeah, we can try to curb it. We can try to confine it to the South. It'll die off. But ending slavery at that convention in 1860, that's not on the party platform, let alone fighting a war and sending 600,000 Americans to their death. Um, It's just not conceivable to the people at the temporarily newly constructed what was called the wigwam, the the kind of uh, wooden arena they built in 1860 to nominate a presidential candidate. But as Walter Starr tells us, as the convention started, Seward or Chase's candidacy was not a sure thing, certainly as much as it had seemed months earlier. 
At the beginning of that year, if you'd made a list of the likely Republican presidential nominees, Lincoln would have been well down the list. Seward of New York and Chase of Ohio were at the top of the list. But as the Republicans gather in Chicago in May of 1860, the folks from the, the swing states, um, places like Illinois, Indiana, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, um, say that if the Republicans nominate a radical like Seward or Chase, they're going to lose in those states. Um, and without those states, there's no way that a Republican, whoever it is, can be elected president because they're not going to get any votes in the southern states. As the first vote was to be taken, Chase is still hopeful that Ohio will stick by him. And these other delegates he had cultivated over the years would follow in the later votes of what he thought would be a protracted balloting process. But the first ballot needs in fourth and second and the third ballot. And a little known lawyer and former congressman from Illinois named Abraham Lincoln, considered a moderate on the slavery issue, a candidate focused on union was beginning to emerge as the compromise candidate. As the delegates start to nominate, and I, I, I deal with it just almost on a minute-by-minute basis <laughs> at one yeah. point, talking about how they had a, a fixed order in which the role was going to be called. So Maine got to be the first to vote, followed by Vermont, followed by New Hampshire, et cetera. The delegates start like, like partners in a bridge game to kind of signal not only their first choices, but their second choices. Clearly, Lincoln is a lot of people's second choice, and thus, fairly quickly, it only takes three ballots, he is nominated. Chase is really angry at the Ohio delegates because at the state convention, which occurred in Columbus, um, uh, they voted in favor of Chase, but the the actual process of selecting delegates was not just that state convention. It was a lot of little regional conventions, and a lot of the folks elected in those little regional conventions were were not Chase people. And so, the the Illinois delegation, for example, voted you know consistently and unanimously for Abraham Lincoln in in that convention, whereas the Ohio delegation was divided. And Chase found that distasteful and disloyal and was was not happy with those Ohio delegates. Chase is crushed. His own state abandons him as early as the second ballot and ends up providing the decisive votes to push Lincoln over the top on the third ballot to put him past Seward. But Salem P. Chase publicly puts a positive spin on his defeat, and he'd be a good soldier moving forward, according to Walter Starr. For me, at least, that that private anger at the Ohio delegates is a lot less important than what he does in public, which is, again, circling back to Columbus for you, um, on the, the, you know, the, the day after the convention, there's a huge rally on the State House steps there in Columbus, and Chase is the lead speaker, and he says, you know, Lincoln is going to win. I can see it already in the enthusiasm with which this nomination is greeted. And then he, he works hard. To, to ensure that Lincoln is elected. Lincoln goes on to win the election. Democrats split. There's even a fourth candidate from the new Constitutional Union Party that pulls in 13% of the presidency. Lincoln wins with less than 40% of the vote. And the South is furious. I would never justify what the American South does, secession and civil war, my God, but that doesn't mean we can't put ourselves in their shoes for a moment. 
just a moment, a person from the North wins the presidency even though they didn't even make it on your ballot. They weren't even an option for you to vote on, and now that person's president. The North had that much sway when they were united. Lincoln was kept off the ballot in most southern states. States began seceding in December, and the secession crisis grips the nation. Chase attended a peace conference in D.C. in February, but that was a failure. You know the rest, but Chase was named to Lincoln's team of rivals, his cabinet. Seward gets the coveted Secretary of State, but Chase gets what's known as the runner-up cabinet spot, the Secretary of the Treasury. Within five weeks of their inauguration, Lincoln and Chase find themselves in the middle of the bloodiest war in U.S. history. And Chase has this Herculean task of trying to fund the war, keep America's economy going from completely bottoming out, and them having to you know, sue for peace with the South and a permanent split of North and South. Round numbers, the, the federal government is running at about $50 million a year before the Civil War. And by the end of Chase's time, it's running, it's spending about a billion, one with a B. Um, so that's a factor of 20. And if you've ever been involved in any organization if, in, you know, that has a budget and imagine multiplying that over the course of a couple of years by a factor of 20, you realize the incredible challenge involved. He raises the money in various ways, most notably um, by what we would call kind of a, a popular bond campaign or a series of popular bond campaigns mm-hmm. in which folks line up at the post office and other places to um, to buy government bonds in small denominations. And he works closely with a, a banker, Jay Cook, um, who goes on to be famous in American history for other reasons. But it, his first claim to fame is, is working with, with Chase on those campaigns. Chase also uses the crisis of the Civil War to force through two changes which he's been thinking about for a long time, namely the creation of a national bank system. We didn't have national banks before the Civil War. We had banks chartered by states. The creation of a single national currency. Again, we didn't really have a national currency. People talked about dollars, but when you actually went into a store to make a major purchase and you presented your banknote, say from the first national, sorry, first state bank of Columbus, someone out here in California would look at that and say, well, I don't know anything about the bank in Columbus. I'll, I'll take it, but it, but I'll take it at a deep discount. And that might've been the wrong decision because in fact, the bank in Columbus might've been bankrupt. So getting that national banking system and national currency through Congress was something of which he was incredibly proud. The national banking system Chase started is still here today. It's a major pillar of our economy. But he also mandated paper money, the U.S. dollar. Chase helped design the dollar. You really couldn't have paper money back then because it was just too easy to counterfeit. It was still a major problem counterfeiting after the war, but it got Chase the nickname around the country of old greenbacks. Old greenbacks, for, for because the the these first federal notes were printed on a kind of bright green paper, and perhaps reflecting his own personal ambitions, his own picture was on the the one dollar bill. The war goes poorly in the first year and a half. Chase is advocating for emancipation of all slaves, a far too aggressive policy at first for Lincoln, but he begins to come around. And once the Union wins a big battle at Antietam in September in Maryland. Lincoln uses that victory news to also announce the Emancipation Proclamation. The Battle of Antietam resulted in the death of some 3,700 Americans in one day. 
It's considerably worse than Pearl Harbor or 9-11. That's not even counting the fifteen to 20,000 wounded. But at that time, it was considered a big victory, and Lee's army was smashed at the Sunken Road and Burnside's Bridge. But of course, McClellan let them escape to fight another day. Lincoln announced following Antietam that all 3.5 million slaves in the South were free. The Emancipation Proclamation would take effect on New Year's Day, 1863. One of his diary notes in the summer of 62, he said that he raised for the 10th or 20th time at a cabinet meeting. And if, if you put yourself in the shoes of the president, you have some cabinet officer raising some issue for the 20th time. That has to be annoying. Um, but the issue that he's raising is, a, is, from his perspective, the you know the vital issue of emancipation, um, and he sees in, in, in one of his letters he writes, you know, the the blacks are the only loyal population worth talking about in the South, and so he thinks that Lincoln should be declaring that they are free, and you know he recognizes, as does Lincoln, that that declaration doesn't really change much because the Southern masters are going to treat it as, as merely, you know, a piece of paper, but as the union armies advance and they are constantly advancing into the South, um, the declaration is going to start to have teeth because as they free a, a county or a region, the, the blacks in that, the enslaved blacks in that region will become free. So yes, he, he, he he thinks Lincoln moves too slowly. Um, even once the, the proclamation is issued, he thinks that it isn't broad enough, but fully behind, he, he just would, would go a little a little faster and a little farther than Lincoln. Yeah, and he wants people to know that because Lincoln's kind of taken his issue at that point, you know? He 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 does, and this is also somewhat annoying to Lincoln because you know Washington is a small town, and word gets back to Lincoln that that Chase is is you know not not merely raising these issues in the cabinet meeting, but talking about them to um, senators and others. As 1863 turns to 64, the war drags on. There's many within his own Republican Party that believe Lincoln cannot possibly win a second term. The president himself, through the summer of 64, he didn't believe he had a chance. The war had been horrible, and despite Gettysburg and other victories in 1863, it was still up in the air. The death totals had skyrocketed as the war ground on. Chase saw his chance. It seems crazy to say someone from Lincoln's own cabinet would run against the greatest president of all time, but in the middle of the war, Lincoln was not universally popular. And Chase was afflicted, as Lincoln would say, with presidential fever. Salmon P. Chase was strongly considering a run for president in February of 1864. A publication, the Pomeroy Circular, as it was called, was making the rounds in Washington and Republican circles around the country. Walter Starr talks about Chase's ambition to be president and how the Pomeroy Circular eventually leads to the end of Chase's time in Lincoln's cabinet. The team of rivals was no more. There's no question that Chase is is running for president in late 63, early 64. It, it, it sort of blows up in his face, however, in February of 64, when a letter, the Pomeroy Circular, which is intended to be kind of circulated quietly among friends, appears in the newspaper. This letter basically says, you know, Chase rather than Lincoln is the right man to nominate. Among other things, Chase immediately sends a letter to Lincoln offering his resignation. He also sends a public letter saying, look, um, you know, Republicans of Ohio don't want me. And they, 
they had made it clear they didn't want him, then I'm not a candidate. Lincoln, however, it's important to note, does not accept Chase's resignation. He says, look, basically, Lincoln says, I'm going to choose my secretary of treasury based on who can do that job best. And at the moment, you're doing the job well. So stay put. He does stay put. I think this is also overlooked a bit um, that he, you know, even after his own presidential chances blow up, he stays put and works night and day for for Lincoln, for the nation, really, um, until they have another quarrel at the very end of June 64 about, from Chase's perspective, Lincoln's attempt to put his own choice into the most important position other than Chase's in the Treasury, namely the assistant secretary in New York City. At that point, Chase submits another resignation letter. And at that point, Lincoln, who now is the Republican nominee, accepts Chase's resignation. Chase had offered his resignation multiple times during the war. Lincoln had thought him indispensable in the first three plus years of the war, but now he was finally out. The way he was out reminded me a little bit when Trump fired his Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and later his Secretary of Defense when he fired them by Twitter. As Walter Starr's great book Salem P. Chase, Lincoln's Vital Rival tells it, Secretary Chase was the last one to know that he was out. He finds out he's he's up on Capitol Hill in a conversation with Senator William Fessenden of Maine about trying to get some bit of legislation through and and a messenger hands a, a message to Fessenden who turns to Chase and says, have you resigned? Chase says, well, yes, I did submit a resignation letter. And Fessenden says, well, it seems that it's been accepted because I'm called to the floor of the Senate to vote on the question of your successor. Things moved a little more rapidly in the 19th century than they do in the 21st century. From nomination to Senate vote um, happened within, in, in that case, in a matter of minutes. Just four months after his resignation from Treasury was accepted, Roger Taney, the Supreme Court Chief Justice of the United States, died. Roger Taney, known for his terrible Dred Scott decision, a racist Chief Justice for many years, passed away, and Lincoln had to name a new Chief Justice. And he picked what he thought would be the best person to preserve these new laws, these new amendments that were coming. And he chose Salmon P. Chase, a lawyer, someone who's clearly going to be favorable in his rulings during the Reconstruction era that was soon to come. In December of 1864, following Lincoln's re-election, he was nominated, and he was confirmed. And as our guest, Walter Starr, says, it's probably the biggest departure from one chief justice to the next in American history. I'm not sure that there ever has been or ever will be quite such a dramatic flip in the character of the chief justice of the United States. Roger Taney, who, you know, was chief justice for years and years and years and issued a lot of other opinions, is remembered today and indeed was remembered at his death for one opinion. Uh, the Dred Scott decision in which he, um, writing for the majority, said that that um, African-Americans could never be citizens. That was his ill-advised attempt to kind of, you know, resolve through a judicial decision, a decision, uh, an issue that really was only going to be resolved, as we know, through civil war. Tawney dies in the middle of the 1864 presidential campaign. And after thinking about it for a little while, Lincoln nominates kind of Tawney's complete opposite on issues involving Black Americans, namely Salmon Portland Chase, who, you know, has been ahead of Lincoln 
and and people know this that he's been ahead of Lincoln on black rights for for decades. Chase, you know, was on record as early as 1845 as favoring giving blacks the right to vote. That's a speech he gives in Cincinnati, Ohio, um, and prints as a pamphlet, so everyone knows exactly what he said. Um, Lincoln was on record as opposing black voting rights, and only only finally comes around just before his death to saying that he's in favor of giving some blacks the right to vote. It's a it's a sea change at the top of the Supreme Court. Chief Justice Chase ran the Supreme Court for nine years. We'll talk with Walter Starr about some of those important decisions. But Chase was somebody who was very far ahead. He was believed in women's suffrage. He was a girl dad, and he had two girls that were very capable, very smart. And he believed that women should be allowed to vote. He voiced that opinion. And he was very outspoken, as we said, on, on a lot of different matters. Uh, that's something that you would not see from someone like a Chief Re- Justice Rehnquist or, or Roberts in our time. But we talked with Walter Starr about some of the cases of note during his tenure at the court. The two cases you mentioned, the Slaughterhouse case is one of the sort of most important cases of the Reconstruction era. It arises out of... Um, a Louisiana statute that attempts to centralize the the, the business of slaughtering uh, livestock in New Orleans, um, and um, it's challenged under the new Fourteenth Amendment to the Constitution. And what's important for us today is that the majority opinion, which is still good law, although there are people who question it. Um, uh, basically reads part of the 14th Amendment out of the Constitution, the privileges and immunities language. The next day, in a decision that is not as well known, um, uh, Chase is the sole dissent in Bradwell v. Illinois. Um, the issue is whether a woman is entitled to practice law in Illinois. Eight justices agree that Illinois is, is well within its rights to deny her the right to practice law, and one justice, Chief Justice Chase, dissents. He doesn't write an opinion. His health is not very good, but it's pretty clear that he, you know, he, he views her as having a 14th Amendment right to pursue her chosen profession, and he, he views the Illinois discrimination as unconstitutional. Not very remarkable for us today, but at the time, he was he was all alone in in holding that view. It, he is is on record both in private letters and public statements as being in favor of of female suffrage. He's he's on record on all sorts of points as chief justice. From a modern perspective, he's he's on record way too much. But in his view, a, a chief justice didn't cease to have political views um, just because he becomes chief justice. He he didn't go out and campaign for particular candidates, but he expressed views on women's suffrage, on whether the states should ratify the constitutional amendments, etc. But as Chief Justice Chase was probably best known for presiding over the impeachment hearing in 1868 of President Andrew Johnson. Before a joint session of Congress, it was the first impeachment in U.S. history, and Johnson would survive by one vote. It would have made Ohio and Ben Wade the president had he gotten one more vote. He was the president of the Senate. There was no VP at the time. 
I feel like in this episode, we've said like four or five times, go back and listen to this episode, that episode. We've got 90 some previous episodes, but uh, our second season, we did an Ohio versus impeachment episode about Ben Wade, about that impeachment trial. A, a really fun episode with our friend Bruce Carlson from My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, a great, great history and politics show you should go listen to. You find all our episodes on our website, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com, or just go to EvergreenPodcast.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. And you can go back and to the archives and find any of those episodes. So, But Chase wasn't done chasing the presidency. And in 1868, he wasn't going to get the Republican nomination because they wanted Ulysses S. Grant, the celebrity, and Grant was a huge favorite. Chase even went after the Democratic nomination, which seems crazy just three years after the Civil War. But maybe he did have presidential fever later years. We talked with Walter Starr about the impeachment trial and some of his questionable conduct during that impeachment trial when it comes to his political aspirations. You know, if you just look at the record of what he did in the impeachment, if you don't look at the private correspondence, it's hard to fault his his rulings on the evidentiary questions presided, you know, pretty well over, as we know from more recent history, anytime a, a president is impeached, it's going to be a bitter partisan battle. But if you do peel back and look at his private correspondence, earlier in the year, um, there had been an effort to, to press him as the Republican candidate. That, that effort didn't get very far. People wanted Ulysses Grant. They, they viewed him as a a great war hero that was going to easily trounce whoever the the Democrats nominated. But then kind of during the impeachment trial, Democratic newspapers start to talk about uh, Chase as the Democratic candidate. And and far from kind of shutting that down and and issuing what we would call a Shermanesque statement, namely, you know, I'm not a candidate and under no circumstances will I be a candidate. Chase, um, uh, not publicly, but in lots of private letters, explores that possibility um, in, in, and writes to leading Democrats about how his views on banking and, and, and other issues line up with their views. His daughter, circling back to Kate, goes up to, to New York City where the convention is held and kind of runs the chase war room there. I don't think it was ever very likely, but it's certainly uh, not terribly appropriate. Even by 19th century standards, he's pushing the boundaries of what, what's appropriate for a, for a justice of the Supreme Court. As we close today with Walter Starr, we want to talk about just the importance of one person can make in U.S. history. We see it all the time, and Salmon P. Chase is, is no exception. Someone who, through his will, his hard work, and really his perseverance through some hard times, some dark times in the 1830s and 40s and 50s, to help bring equality to the United States. Now, there had to be a civil war to get there, and he played a big role in that as well, in keeping that war machine in the North running. But we talked with Walter Starr about just the lesson one can learn from looking at the life of Salmon P. Chase. I do think that, that reading and thinking about the life of Chase impresses on us that, that you know, individual Americans can leave their fingerprints on history. They can uh, create movements which create change. Um, you know, if you look all the way back in the early 1840s, when Chase first starts to agitate um, the slavery issue, it, it seemed hopeless. Um, and indeed, 
if anything, slavery gets stronger over the 20 years that run from 1841 through the start of the Civil War in 1861. Um, and yet Chase lives to see what he dreamed of. He lives to see, you know, uh, Black Americans, you know, free and Black Americans having the right to own their own property and, and to vote. Um, uh, you know, we we forget about this brief period of Reconstruction because we we focus on all the sort of grim history that follows it, the Jim Crow era. But you know, at the moment Chase dies, there are not not just black voters, but there are black members of Congress. In a way, it was good he died when he did. He didn't have to see some stuff that would have deeply distressed him in, in the latter phases and end of Reconstruction. He could and did die hopeful that that Black Americans would, would soon enjoy all that he'd worked for for so long. From Garfield's tomb to the Serpent Mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight making history, there's so many books you need to see, I like reading, and I like reading, a canoe and Tyler too, from the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue, Edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading That'll do it for today. Thanks so much for listening, guys. As you can guess, our book recommendation is Solomon P. Chase, Lincoln's Vital Rival by our guest Walter Starr, Simon & Schuster, 2021. Again, it's available on Audible. Uh, anywhere you go, Barnes & Noble has it, obviously, and it's a really great book. I implore you to check it out. There's a link in the show notes to, to buy that, and it's it's a long one. Don't get me wrong. It's all Walter Starr's work is very in-depth, but it is worth it. He's one of our leading historians, and really what I love about this show is I get to bring on people that I look up to and that I read and can't wait for their new books to come out. And speaking of which, we asked him just offhand, hey, what are you working on? What's your next book? And sure enough, it has an Ohio connection. We can't wait to bring him back, whether it's in two years, three years. His books take some time to write. But we can't wait to have him back to talk about another great Ohioan. I have a tentative agreement uh, with my publisher, Simon & Schuster, to research and write the biography of another leading um, man of Ohio. I can, you, you will readily identify him when I tell you that he's the only man ever to be both president and chief justice of the United States. Great. Yeah. I love it. Taft. So I, I will be writing about William Howard Taft. So there will be a substantial Ohio element to the story because he <laughs> is born in Cincinnati, Ohio in uh, 1857 and uh, grows up there during the Civil War and um, Alfonso and everybody. Yeah. Father Alfonso is a candidate for governor of Ohio and serves in the in the grand cabinet and then serves overseas. Um, his brother Charlie is editor of the Cincinnati paper. And so there'll, there'll be there'll be a lot of Ohio in the book, but but there are a lot of other places. I, I'm in, into the process of, of researching it, becoming there to Ohio to do research. 
We're back in two weeks, everybody, with the mid-season finale. We're going to be talking about Ohio versus vaccines. We're going to tell the story of polio, the 1950s, and the vaccine that was developed by Cincinnati's own Albert Sabin, his race against Jonas Salk, and that incredible rivalry, and talk about really one of the scariest diseases of the 20th century that afflicted so many American children, and the battle for that vaccine the science, and, and really, honestly, a little bit of its comparison to our vaccine situation today and the differences and similarities in that experience, which was, again, a nationwide inoculation project. Thanks to our guest, Walter Starr. He is the man. Check out his book in the show notes. We'll post about it on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on all those social networks or at Ohio V the World on Twitter. We will see you guys in two weeks. Keep having a great summer. Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.